The following is a presentation of the Radio Misfits Podcast Network. From the birthplace of modern winemaking, Sonoma, California, welcome to the winemakers. Local experts Sam Katuri, Bart Hansen, and Brian Casey, along with host John Myers, invite you to listen in as they discuss all facets of winemaking. So sit back, pour yourself a glass, and let's hear what the guys have to say this week. Ah, uh, Brian's favorite kind I, of pour, white wine. I've John, never you seen. Have no idea how excited I am today. Never seen Brian so eager to be the one doing the pour to start the show. He's like, "I'll do it. I got it. I got this I one. I got this one. I yeah, yeah, got yeah. it." Today and then when we when um uh, when Charles was on and he brought the bandol. The bandol was, was like, a yeah yeah yeah. yeah no, you I got jump it. in. I got you it. know your moments. You know your moments. <laughs> hey everybody, welcome to the winemakers. I'm John Myers with Sam Katuri. Bart Hansen is is somewhere in transit, and Brian Casey and special guest today Dan Petrosky from Masakon Masakon Winery. Yeah. Lots of different. Is it a, it's a long day. It's not a short day. It's not Masakon. So, so that's what I'm saying it wrong for. And then I heard Elaine ever. Chuck and Brown um, right. talking to Dan, and 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 I, she was saying Masakon. So I was like, oh, I've been saying it incorrectly, but I don't know. We got him ah, here. I, last actually, it doesn't matter what he says. If Elaine says it that way, that's the way it is. <laughs> that's it. Man. That's it. <laughs> I mean, it's got to mean something, right? So we should, if we yeah. found out what it meant. Then, oh, then you mean ask the could... guest a question? Yeah, why don't we? Well, Dan, welcome to the show. How do you pronounce the name of your winery? <laughs> On a beautiful Sonoma morning, welcome. Thank you guys uh, for having me. Um, you made the I trip across county? Yeah, across county lines. I would have thought that you would have had a clip of a bottle being opened and poured into a glass and no, just cut it in. We do it live. I love it. We do it live. Um, oh, yeah. But no, oh. great, great, great question. Masakan um, is named after Monte Masico, the Masakan Hills, which is uh, just north of Naples, uh, where my great grandparents were born. Uh, one of the wines we'll be sipping on today uh, is named after their granddaughter, my mother, Anya. And that's a wine made of, uh, uh, you know, focusing on Italian white grape varieties, which Masakan, as, uh, as an entity, has been since uh, I started in 2009. What got you into this in 2009? You've been working all over it. Well, oh, yeah, go ahead. I mean, he was, we, we should, we should start at the beginning. You, I mean, didn't start off in wine. You were like a writer and a journalist for, for a while. And it wasn't until, well, I mean, early 2000s at Dumal, right? That, that you kind of got jumped in with uh, with wine. But, but but what was your life like before that? And how, and and what made you make the jump? Yeah, so that that Italian American uh, mother, Ani of mine, we uh, we all grew up in uh, Brooklyn, New York, with my grandmother in Brooklyn. Uh, and having a great Italian grandmother at home too. So we were classic Italian Americans, you know. Sunday lasagna and, and, and all the pastas and the sauces and the eggplant parms and all that fun stuff that the Italian American food culture has. Eat, yep. mancha, the mancha. gravy, the and gravy, Sunday gravy. <laughs> um, so I kind of built my career as a New Yorker, uh, high school, college, business school all in Manhattan. I ended up in going to um, work for Time Inc. That's what you were referring to. Uh, I worked at Sports Illustrated and Time Magazine for for uh, about 10 years. Wait, uh, what did you do with Sports Illustrated? 
So it was great. I mean, I bathing suit issue, right? I was, uh, I was, yes, uh, I <laughs> yeah. was, I was a hand model at one point. Um, I used to work late, so uh, I, I wanted to mention you have beautiful hands. So, I, and then, and now I'm just a white winemaker, so I never get dirty. <laughs> no kidding, no stains, I, no stains. I, I used to remember when we used to like compare our hands during harvest, and I'm like, fuck that, I'm wearing gloves from now on. Um, who needs to be vaselining your hands at night? Uh, it's bad. So, uh, yeah, no, I was. Um, I worked in the editorial side, building the websites for Sports Illustrated back in 1998, wow. uh, 1996, 97, 98. Um, and not only building the websites, I was writing. I was the photo editor. I was doing, it was, it was this is 1996 Web 1 internet days, AOL and CompuServe and, you know, Timings Pathfinder. And um, during that period, I built a couple of business plans for magazines and uh, the powers that be at time inc said that i should not be <laughs> building the websites for time inc and sports <laughs> illustrated and not be photo editing and and writing the occasional story so they pushed me to the time magazines marketing and consumer marketing and finance and business side and advertising and that's when i got into wine um when i started mm. to eat and drink my way around manhattan uh with uh corporate card from Time Inc. Yeah. yeah. And did if some, I only did knew damn, what is that? Can you explain yeah. that to me? Um, <laughs> it was insane, guys. It was a twenty-five thousand. I shouldn't be saying this out loud, but twenty-five thousand uh, dollar, like, you know, like I had twenty-five to fifty thousand dollar annual corporate dining budget, and, and that was. In 1998 in, in dollars, the early yeah, in right. the early 2000s, right. and I had no, and I was eating at places like Veritas, which was considered one of the great wine restaurants of the world at the time, um, and eating at you know steakhouses and great restaurants. And if I only knew then, and what I did, what I did know then was there were things like Opus One and um, Insignia and Screaming Eagle on some of these wine lists, and I knew that my clients would point at them because they were the highest ticket price items. And yeah, like, totally. That's gonna shoot my budget for the month, and I'd I'd like to eat a couple more times at fancy restaurants and yeah. uh, in New York. So that's when I started reading about wine, and I literally joked, I read more about wine than I drank it because I wanted to know the stories behind it. I wanted to know the people. I wanted to be able to say, hey, you know these things called the Mistral winds that come off of North Africa into Southern Rhone, and they, you know, it's how the great Syrahs of the world are made. That's why Joseph Phelps calls this wine Mistral, and it's a, it's a Syrah-based wine in California, and blah 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 blah. And I didn't have to buy a three hundred dollar insignia on yeah. a steakhouse wine list. I could buy a forty dollar Mistral and save two hundred forty bucks um, per bottle. And then that shit got around to my friends, and my friend, my friends who all worked on Wall Street were like, "We're bringing Dan to dinner." Because Dan's gonna do exactly what he does with us, totally. and he's gonna save us so much more money and <laughs> and and then you know we're all you know we're all play football together in college and we're all buddies and we're all gonna party anyway. But if we could save a few dollars here and there, and buy more bottles that way, buy more bottles that way, and <laughs> and and I was reading the Parker Bible back then. I mean, he used to put out his book every year with the reviews in it, not just the actual, you know, kind of print publication that he sent out to subscribers but he used to actually publish a book and used to read that he used to subscribe to house and garden when jay mcinerney was writing for yeah. that and you know and you're 20 something year old single yeah. guy in manhattan with you know subscribing to house and garden kind of looked weird <laughs> on the coffee table but um it might have worked though you know, it might have been some success yeah. it was it was it was you know i was i was an all-in magazine guy through and through and um but I hit a turning point, moved to Italy, uh, worked on a vineyard. For Wait, a year. but why did you move to Italy? 
with the Italian American in me. Um, hmm. I felt comfortable there. It was a place I traveled to on vacations. Um, the language wasn't far off from, you know, you know, throwing a few, you know, hands around the air. And, uh, hey, and did you, I mean, your grandmother was in the house. Did you speak Italian growing up? No, she was actually, she was, um, born here in America, but okay. her parents were the immigrants and they would not speak Italian around her and let her right. speak Italian because she needed to assimilate. Totally. Her. No, that's a, that's the same thing with my, my grandparents. My, my yeah. grandparents or my grandma and her sisters all spoke Italian around us and we knew that was something they didn't want us to know. That was the only time they spoke right. They Italian spoke Italian words. when they didn't oh, want you to yeah. know what they were talking about. Right. Yeah. So when you went to Italy and worked in a vineyard, how did that happen? I mean, that happens here, sure, because you worked at a winery here and someone's got a connection and helped you get there. You you were out of the box, so to speak. Yeah, I was. Um, I was just graduated business school. It was a program part time program at night and weekends or whatever that uh, I did. And one of my colleagues was um, an Italian kid, and we all went and visited him. And his family, and we spent a week, ten days on the island, and uh, visited a couple of his family friends, and they were owners of vineyards and wineries. And yeah. so, when I had the opportunity to leave Time Inc. to go to Wall Street Journal, I said, "If I'm going to leave this company I've been with for ten years, which I believe and love and and care about, I'm going to leave for a better reason than the Wall Street Journal." Yeah. No offense to the to, to Journal and and their successes over the years and their publication but Chad, i don't think the murdochs listen to the podcast you can you can talk <laughs> pretty sure really <laughs> but um so yeah i said hey call, i told my buddy as i was like, call the people who went and visited can i come and you know work there or something and and he was like go work at the wall street journal i was like oh come on i didn't take i didn't take a break it's a sabbatical i'll take a year and um so i took a year and i spent awesome. two or three days a week going to the vineyard and uh, getting fed a 60 cent, you know, coffee or, or cafe, which was espresso and maybe, a, you know, um, croissant or something. And then uh, and that was it. And I didn't get paid. I did that for a year. I lived mm. with uh, I rented an apartment from the Benanti family, who, which, you know, if anyone knows Mount Etna these days, the Benanti family has been there from day one and uh, making some of the great white wines of the world and yeah. red now. Um, so, uh, yeah, I just got that exposure, came back to the States and. I always say there wasn't like a LinkedIn jobs, wine jobs board in 2006. And um, right. I just so happened to meet Andy Smith at Jumal through uh, the guys at Anhill Farms, uh, Webb Marquez uh -huh. and Dave Lowe. And Dave Lowe was like, hey, it was 06 was a large crop, yeah. uh, bigger than everyone expected at the time because it came off 05 and 05 was monstrous. No one expected six to be so big. And Andy last minute was like, I need another intern. And um, it was a later year, so it was good. I got out here August 1st. Um, and Andy asked also if I could um, spend a day a week uh, working at Larkmead. And I was like, sure. So I did six days at, at Jumal, kept under like no a legal visit. Because was Andy was the winemaker at, at, at Larkmead. Yeah. And, and was that the start of the change of Larkmead and then you? And then you? Or, or was it more, you know what I mean, the, the growth and... Yeah revitalization of Larkmead, is that safe to say? Yeah, the uh, so Larkmead started making wine again in, in the late mid to late 90s with, uh, they hired Paul Hobbs and Andy worked for Paul Hobbs. So Andy's three wineries were Dumal, Larkmead and Gemstone that he covered as Paul Hobbs assistant, one of one of Paul's assistants. Okay. And uh, when Andy decided to leave Paul Hobbs, Dumal offered him like, he was a Scotsman, so Dumal offered him a, a citizenship opportunity. And so he took his three wineries with him. He 
focus a lot on Dumal because Dumal was giving him, you know, the paperwork to, to remain in the States. And, and thankfully they did. He's an incredible winemaker. Um, and I learned a shit ton from him. Um, and yeah, so he was, yeah, uh, cool. he was kind of the winemaker at Dumal consulting at, um, at Gemstone. He left Gemstone in 04. Larkney built a winery in 05, 06. Uh, so I was there in 06, you know, the second vintage in the winery. He needed someone in the cellar full time. I was an adult. I was 33 years old. He can trust me locking the doors at night. Um, I knew my way around spreadsheets. I worked in corporate America. I spent a year in Europe. He was a European. He knew that I was curious. I worked hard and I was mature. And uh, so he hired me for like $40,000 a year. And I was like, fuck it, I'll take the job. Um, And that's how how I started at Lark Mead. And I didn't mean to jump ahead, but I, I, when we get a chance to hear those stories from the people that were there when it happened, as opposed to, you know, yeah. trying to remember it, it's always the best. Yeah. Yeah. So. yeah. We've, I've been fortunate to, you know, to have that experience. I wasn't planning to be a winemaker. I wasn't planning to make wine. I'm not educated to make wine uh, academically, but I, it, it's just like, you know, I was told when I was working, um, I was, I was told by a friend from Sports Illustrated who I, who was a couple years ahead of me in college when I was offered a job at, to stay on at Sports Illustrated or move to People Magazine, which was the publication of Time Inc. He said, don't get off a moving train. So he said, don't get off, you know, don't leave the Sports Illustrated train to go to People just because People's a bigger entity. And I kind of felt when I came out here for Harvest and I was working, you know, every day from August 1st and then by October 31st, Andy offered me, you know, the Larkney job to work in the cellar. And I was like, don't get off that moving yeah, train, yeah. you know? I'm like, I don't know what I'm doing. He'd have to come over the hill and forklift some barrels around for me to do a racking, you know? Right. I'm like, I didn't know how to drive a forklift. <laughs> like, I don't, I mean, that was my biggest fear was putting this, you know, the, yeah, no kidding, right? Tines right through the head of the barrel. I'd still like yeah. to do that at some point, you know, I'm sure, I've, you know. I've seen wait, it you happen. still can't drive a forklift? No, I can. Oh, <laughs> no, I was like, wait, the, the mistakes on the forklift. Oh, I, I, I mean, <laughs> you're, for, you're certified on a forklift too now, Brian. I, I've done that. You so, put them yeah. through the front. <laughs> I've I've lost barrels off of a two hide yeah. multiple times. Um, thankfully, they were Moscon barrels, so that's my bad. <laughs> it doesn't <laughs> hurt quite as bad. Yeah, it's, it's well, Valley Cabernet. No, it does hurt. It hurts more. It hurts more. <laughs> and I love the Scotsman um, connection because that's why you happen to see some Dumal barrels um, at Bart's spot right. because he shares it with Steve Law from McLaren. Yeah, and then also Andy or uh, Jamie Kutch. Yeah. And Jamie gets some barrels from Dumas also. Yeah. So, yeah. Oh man, speaking of Jamie, I mean, he's like he started. He worked Costa Brown Harvest in those six same year I was working Dumas. Oh no way. Mead, Yeah, I mean Russell Bevan was around that year. It was it was a pretty cool class of, uh, of people. You know, Ryan um, Ryan from Ryan was working with Pass right. that year. Right. Yeah. yeah, we were we had a we had a fun little class. And yeah, I love Jamie's story. I think I would say there's like three business school case study stories of successes in wine i think jamie kutch is one i think uh hardy wallace is one i think it's the way that they built their brands and like how they did how they created audiences and followings and yeah. engagements back then yeah. um was probably a model that a lot more people should have followed yeah but didn't and um i gotta get jamie to tell me that story Right. <laughs> We're gonna get him on. I mean, he's he, he's, he's like you know the elusive. Like, eh. I know. You gotta ask his wife. His wife, his wife uh, pulls all the strings. She's the PR agent. So the still, she pulls all yeah. the strings. I'll tell him you said that. <laughs> <laughs> well, so so you're at Dumal. Then at some point you go full time over to Larkmead. Yeah. And 
I mean, that's like playing around in a little bit different sandbox, right? Because it's like, oh, this is this is the serious fucking people with money over here in Napa that, um, um, like, this is was the pressure on a little bit more? Did you feel a little bit more pressure being involved with that? Um, I didn't because in all the research and reading I ever did about wines, places like Dumont and Larkin weren't on the radar huh. of, you know, I wasn't necessarily you know, following the Parker scores and buying Parker wines at the time yeah. I was reading Parker's wine Bible, but there was, you know, it's a global publication. You know, it wasn't just a Napa Valley publication. I was reading yeah. wine spectator, but that's a global publication. So I didn't know that this was a historic estate yeah. until I had the opportunity to like the owner of Larkin was like, Hey, you know, you're, you're in time magazine. So you should do the history of Larkin. And I'm like, sure course that just totally makes sense um and then i did i did a chronology back to the you know the donner party basically and um Jesus. and and then i became just kind of the, the the de facto historian of the place and i and we jokingly used to say that was the uh, the most famous place you never heard of which is true no one no one right. has heard of Larkmead. you know people still call it landmark you know right. <laughs> i mean <laughs> you know people still call firebell fireballs um you know they still they still you know i, I think that we take we take wine to Precious. We, we create wine being too precious because we're in it every day. Yeah. But the majority of people can't remember Masakan or Masakan or Ania <laughs> or Nia or Larkmead or Landmark. And right. Well, especially because you know, we're in the Mecca, right? Like yeah. we get it here, but you get over the Sierras and things change. Too, yeah. In you general. 60 miles out of this place and, and no one wakes up in the morning thinking about Napa Valley or Sonoma County. Well, no, remember the whole reason that Tor Kenwood just changed his label to Tor is because people kept thinking it was Tor Kenwood. Right. right. <laughs> so, yeah. You should have called it The Rock. The Rock. <laughs> <laughs> Anyhow. All right. So different, definitely different um, style of winemaking, right? Because in Italy, you didn't make Cab. And in at Dumal, do they, they made... Uh, I know him for Pinot and Chard, but do they they make Cab there as well? It wasn't until end after Andy left Larkmead, so they were Pinot, Chardonnay, Syrah, Viognier, yeah. and then when Andy left, he actually did something he didn't have didn't really have a chance to do um, in in his days in Napa. He was able to make wine for mountains, mountain fruit. So mm -hmm. he all the early Dumont Cabernets. I think I can't remember the vintage that he started that sixteen maybe, which is a great year to do it. Um, he he got some Montecito fruit, didn't he? Yeah, he he went all all hillsides, and so he was, I think, Veter. I think he I was. Think he got Moon Mountain, Moon um, Mountain, Montecito, sure. um, and then he Atlas does a Shenan. Well, now he's doing everything. Like okay. I think we all, I think we all just started to do everything that came in front of us. Um, and I'm I'm victim of that as well. I work with eleven different white grape varieties, and um, you know, thirteen different vineyards, fourteen going on fifteen this year, sixteen. Um, I think we just become victim of that, and uh, and I think it's also a bad business model to kind of continue to be horizontal. I think that's you create a very thin, narrow floor. I mean, we feel like that's a way to bring in new customers and keep things exciting for customers. But I think we have to build, we have to build castles, um, you know, with the product lines. And I and that's my goal moving forward is is focusing on things like um, Sauvignon Blanc, bringing in a Pinot Grigio program that I can scale, scale Sauvignon Blanc, you know, work. My goal since day one, because I don't like to drive, is like I want to work with farmers that continue to want to work with me and expand my relationship with them. So I, you know, I have 
I get multiple different food sources from singular farmers. Um, Chris Bowen, perfect example here in Russian River. He has, you know, I get Chokai Ripola, uh, Greco, Pinot Grigio, and then the leftover Fiano from that same vineyard. Yeah. It's really helpful when you're sampling yeah. to not have to go to five different vineyards right. again, yeah. you know, and and that's... Fill up a Ziploc bag of grapes. Yeah. I don't even do that anymore. I stopped doing it. You know, the 2018 vintage was hysterical. I tried, I said, you know something, I've been working on a lot of these vineyards for so long. I'm not going to, I'm not going to sample. I'm not going to do chemistry on anything. And pure taste, just everything. No sampling, no chemistry, nothing. I literally had to go and get a, a notarized letter to, to import my wines into the state of Connecticut. Like I had no ETS alcohol numbers. <laughs> <laughs> and they were like, so I was like, I'm not going to go pay and get chemistry done on a bottle of wine that's already been bottled. Because like under 14% alcohol, we have like six degrees. We could be, you know, not six, but we have like two and a half. Like I can't fuck it up that much. I mean, it tastes kind of the same as right. we did the previous year on, on a, a viscosity level. It's pretty obvious. It's 12 and a half. Um, so I, yeah, I had to go get a notarized letter. <laughs> and that was free because I got it from my bank. And it's supposed to like going to pay the, the 40 bucks at ETS. Like that would have been 120 bucks. And popping corks to send in samples and then i then i go to a custom crush facility and they're like oh yeah you have to do chemistry i'm like why do i have to do chemistry it's like my wine they're like no it's a liability thing they don't want to be uh, caught they don't want to be blamed for something being screwed up and i was like okay well i'm not doing your chemistry i'll do a we'll just do a hybrid and we came up with a really happy balance and we're both satisfied with with uh with the chemistry we do and i don't have to pay an arm and a leg just sent a check to Gordon. Yeah, those ETS bills. And you're like, yeah, you got your custom crush, and then you get the ETS bill. And you're like, oh, wait, why do I owe another $5,000? <laughs> I know wineries, their ETS bills are in the forty, fifty thousand. Oh, no like, doubt. It's just mind-blowing. No doubt. Yeah. Mind-blowing. I've used my analogist, and I really liked it. I started mm -hmm. using them last year for the first time, and I'm really um, – there's the problem is you can't do a singular analysis. You have to do the full panel, but the full panel is 40 bucks. So even when you just want sulfur, you get the full panel. Mm -hmm. So just make sure everything's tracking nicely. Yeah. yeah, it's good. So at Larkmead, you did something kind of different, right? You, you like broke up the property into different spaces to kind of see what, how the wines were made and all the different soil types and all that. Will you talk a little bit about that? Oh, and we can talk about the Sauvignon yeah, Blanc. Can we talk too. about Sauvignon Blanc oh, also. Yeah. But we had Sauvignon, we had Sauvignon Blanc at Larkme too, and um, I had I made the recommendation to pull it out because it was just financially not viable. And in when you're farming, when you're farming in Napa Valley at the level of of, of sophistication of 90th percentile fruit, meaning on price, or 95th percentile fruit on price, you're farming at anywhere between fifteen and twenty thousand dollars an acre. And those numbers are don't make sense for Sauvignon Blanc at three of. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. That's, I mean, you know, yeah. If you yeah. have a twenty thousand dollar an acre farming and you're getting two tons the acre of Cabernet, that's why you get those prices for that fruit and the wines. Yeah, this yeah. one in particular is beautiful. Yeah, thank you. No, we um, you know. When we converted to organic farming, and then you know, look, we certain things we did at, uh, at, at you know at Larkmead were were kind of beyond you know tying every cane, you know, clipping every cane vertically, and for shoot positioning reasons and stuff like that. Like that's that's the, is that necessary to make great wine? No, 
is it necessary that you need to have a beautifully aesthetic vineyard? No. Is it, uh, did it, was it helpful for certain aspects of maturation of our fruit and airflow because we had, did have a very windy site up there? Yes. Um, there is, there are reasons to do certain things. Was it overkill? A hundred percent. Yeah. I mean, like, I think, you know, no offense to the, the Hyde Vineyards, but Hyde Vineyards, man, that's the, that's the ugly, beautiful, right? It's like the most beautiful fruit comes from some of the, uh, you know, beautiful tasting wine comes from some pretty ugly shit, you know, and, uh, and no offense to Chris and Larry, I'm having lunch with them next week, but, um, this comes out in two weeks. So you'll be able to, <laughs> yeah, you'll be able to have lunch yeah. before they hear it. He's going to, I'll sign the contract next week at lunch. So I'm like, we're booked, man. We're booked. No, no, no. They, you know, they, they do, they, they respect that the vineyard has a natural form and it doesn't necessarily need to be tinkered with. And I think that's what I'm talking about being ugly. And I think Napa Valley was built on the beauty of postcard like photography as you drive up highway 29, whereas, you know, Sonoma County has a much more of that kind of, I feel like that flow of rolling Hills and, and, and kind of landscape beauty where Napa tends to be a little bit more architecturally devised yeah. beauty. Yeah. Well, they want that, postcard like you said um we were with andy beckstoffer uh, a couple months back and he was saying you know they have to retrain the tourists because everybody thinks well if that's an organic vineyard it's not well taken care of because it's not trimmed you don't see those beautiful dark you know lines under underneath the uh, vines etc so you know where you spray it's, retrain it's changing retrain the tourist eye to yes, what actual beauty in a vineyard is right and you know the fact is, you can still have totally perfectly manicured vineyard floors without spraying anything. Right. And, you know, and that's part of why it's $20,000 an acre to grow those Napa Cabernets because of the keeping up with the Joneses sort of vibe that every vineyard has to have that, you know, level of, of manicuredness. Also with Cabernet and, you know, getting that uniformity of ripeness to get those wines and extractions and, and scores and dollars that the Napa cabs demand, you have to put that level of, of detail in to, you know, you have to know that somebody's paying that much attention in the vineyard to trust that you can then to spend $20,000 a ton or whatever. You, you know, you, it's a, it's definitely a give and take and a push and pull, uh, but you can have vineyards that are a little more wild and still make great wines, right? Yeah. No, I agree. I agree 100%. So people don't know one of one of your sort. Is it a hobby of writing business plans? Because <laughs> if you want to, you know, have a hobby, we could take one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I I love to I love ideas, and every idea to me is, and I repeat this over and over again. I hope people listen. Every idea is a pie, and you have to understand your place in that pie. Are you going to increase the size of the pie or are you going to take a portion of that pie? And if you can't answer that question with a plan, a little literal five year market driven plan with dollars and cents behind it is how you're going to do it and where it's going to come from and where it's going to go. Cause you know, making wine is easy selling. It's hard. Um, so I love that. And it's not just wine. It's like, I ask Thank everybody, you, when you create a product line, how big is the pie? And 99 out of 100 people I've talked to in this community like have no idea how big the pie is. Yeah. And, and then they won't, then I'm like, well, how, how are you gonna fit into it? And I made those mistakes early on as well. I mean, I think when I first came out here in 2006 and I was 
you know, I wanted to do a little bit of everything. So I got into the tasting room and did some help helping out there and learning all the things. And I learned like the fanciest or best word, the, the best sales technique in Napa Valley was to say no. Because once you say no, everyone wants it. Yeah. And that's just a fucking bad idea. <laughs> you know, it's a good idea to very, you know, in a very limited scope. But at the end, you know, end of days, like that's just not a good idea for you know, as a sales business plan, um, to 100%. grow, to grow, to steal the pie or grow the pie. And so now I've just, um, yeah, I, I, every idea has a pie and I, my mind is just trained to, to find how big it is and then estimate how big I can get it and just do the simple math. Okay. If you own 1% of the pie, how big is your business? Basta. That's it. Like, and then if it's like, then it's like, oh my God, that's a, only a, half a million dollar business you'd be I, amazed at the number of corporations in this country who really don't pay attention to that kind of thing they just they just don't they rely on their agency or you know a consultant to do it for them because they just they're just not classical marketers it's i like i mean my my mind thinks in spreadsheets and numbers and and derivatives of numbers to and trends and trend lines and successes and failures of things ups and downs and markets and um i just happen to make wine as well and is it i mean isn't that kind of how moscon started is you wrote a business plan for making red wine sent it to some friends of yours and they kind of looked at it and they were like oh this numbers don't really add up so then you just switched it to white wine and all of a sudden bing bing cash flow <laughs> turn around <laughs> it was yeah Turn around, depletion Sorry, replacements. <laughs> well, no, I mean, where my mind was on this, and this is like maybe the hardest hitting question I'll ever ask in this setting. Um, white wine historically is harder to sell than red wine, and people, for the most part, you know, there's the white wine only drinker is a much smaller piece of the pie than the red wine only drinker. Um, how how do you? write a business plan that's going to make uh, i don't know how many different white wines 11 different varieties of white wine a white wine only brand uh, we love it but we're also like in this bubble of of wine nerddom um what is that what does that business plan look like what is that pie like when it's a white wine only brand you you are 100 percent correct in this in your statements uh on one first time ever on one account not on not on the overall big picture pie. okay you're correct if the if the pie is only Napa Sonoma and direct to consumer. Okay. Um, selling white wine only direct to consumer has been a fucking hard battle. Um, it is easy for people to buy red wine, um, because those are the things that get written about. Those are the things that are that have social currency for bankers who live in Greenwich, Connecticut, and like want to impress their boys and on Wall Street. Uh, the 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 coolest Pinot Grigio is not going to do that. So that's so I agree with you 100%, Sam. It is really difficult to sell white wine, especially direct to consumer. Um, overall, if you look at the big pie, 51% of wine sold in America are white wine. Uh, the number one wine sold in that category is 1499 Chardonnay. We all know that's, you know, KJ Vintners Reserve is the, it drives that market. Um, so there is, you know, white wine is a supermarket brand. In, in essence, right. it's, you know, when when mom goes shopping, women are the gatekeepers of, uh, of the household uh, budgets when they go shopping on Saturday and they're shopping in places that sell wine in supermarkets. And I didn't have that in New York growing up. They're buying they're going down the island and pulling pulling bottles and they're pulling cheap, easy, 
you know, things that aren't going to get them drunk because they have kids to worry about all the other things. Um, but they want enough buzz to like, you know, as I always joke around, the best cut commercial of all time, and it's like the leading force behind Masakon's vision, is the old Calgon take me away commercial. At the end of the day, the bubble bath. Right. You're too young for it, I think. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Sound of that reference going over my head. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, but I, I think can picture it. You yeah. know what I mean? It's like that's like Masakon. I we we talked about this when we walked in. I don't I don't have a physical space or a vineyard to 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 engage a consumer's memory. I have to trigger something else in their life. And so my theory is, where do you want to drink a glass of wine? You want to drink it on, on a beach? You want to drink it on vacation? You want to drink it after a hard day's work? You want to drink it on Thursday night at the gallery opening? Do you want to drink it when you're Netflix and chilling? Do you want to drink it when you're reading a book? Do you want to drink it while you're, you know, I don't know, painting the, the, the new baby's room or something? I don't know. But, like, where do you want to drink a glass of wine? And, uh, and that's where I, I'm trying to fit Masakon into the equation. Right. That's a great answer. Yeah, and for you personally, what do you what are you drinking in your personal life mostly? Is it more white than red? Oh, for sure. Um, you know, I I said this to uh, a member of my tasting group um, a couple of weeks ago. Um, he was stunned. He literally fell off the seat. I said, I never open a bottle of wine home alone because wine is not. I personally just don't have the. Uh, the desire to drink a glass of wine by myself and what tell myself the story of behind the wine, you know, like it's all about that, that 30 second elevator pitch, you know, it's like what the Psalms do for us. When we go to a restaurant, we engage with a wine we're not, we're not familiar with. It's what uh, hopefully our friends do with us. Hopefully our tasting groups do with us, all those things. And so I never, and he was like, you're fucking kidding me. I was like, yeah, 16 years here in, in California. I've never opened a bottle of wine by myself alone. I came from the advertising world at, and marketing and magazines and publishing and the Mad Men era was still alive and well when I got there. So we were a big three martini lunch crowd back then. And so cocktails were in my vein. My wife thinks I should be a bartender and not a winemaker. Um, I mixed every martini by hand during the pandemic for my pod, um, which was a, a group of you know, champion martini drinkers. I mean, sane <laughs> martini drinkers. It's probably and, the first vaccine. Yeah. Some right. gin, some I, vodka, I, maybe a little dry vermouth. Never got it's COVID. Like, it's a perfect, <laughs> perfect mask. The mar classic martini glass. And can I get a picture of that for the? You guys got to get some coops or something for your guests. Um, so yeah, and 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 so long answer to that question is, um, you know, I love. Um, there's a couple of wines over the years that just that just do it for me, and um, and I am uh, I'm I don't have a winery tasting space or anything. I take I, if you want to have a winery tasting with me, we go to if we can find the time, we go to Don Giovanni at three thirty, and I'm doing that today. And we order some fried olives and some frito misto, and I order Melissa Cuomo's Valentina right off the list, and yeah. uh, I order Masacan off the list, and. I tell the stories of Masakan, drink Masakan, but I probably drink more of that Marisa Cuomo uh, white wines off that Don Giovanni list than um, in the last four or five years. Great restaurant, but I've never heard of fried olives. I've heard of warm olives. They're not on the, they're off the list. They're off the menu. Aha. Uh -huh. So you got to be there at that 3.30 crowd. Okay. Yeah. yeah. They only used to serve them, they used to only serve them at lunch or, or till sold Are out. they pan sautéed or are they... I don't know. It's just still a mystery. That's why it's so beautiful. Okay. You know, just All like right. wine. Just yeah. like wine. No All one knows right. how we make it. It's just, oh, it's just, you know. It's <laughs> that part's true. Unicorns and rainbows. If I'm like that, I, for me, aromatically, white wines turn me on much more than red wines do. Right. Um, 
and then crushability for you know if i want to we're sitting around Open a and, bottle I wine by yourself and I want to see i'm not doing that anymore because i'm not um getting off at midnight one o'clock in the morning and coming home to an empty house and opening up a bottle of wine but um but, but i want to i want to have a couple glasses and for yeah. me red wine if i have a couple glasses of red wine i'm going down dark yeah. um some dark um, tunnels um and and falangina and greco de tufo two of my favorite go-tos from honeymooning in italy and finding those Campania wines was like the, the game changing for me. Something that has acidity, but has some body to it. Um, yeah. So how many different varietals are you playing around with and how do you put them together? Because you're not necessarily putting all Italian varietals in one. Yeah. So I, you know, Andy Smith gave me a lot of words of wisdom over the years. And I think the, when I first in December of 20, uh, 2009, after my first vintage, I only wanted to make Anya. And mm. I only wanted to make a white wine blend, like a Colio Bianco uh, style, you know, a Friuli blend with some Tokai, Rebola, Sauvignon Blanc, some Chardonnay, whatever. Those were actually the four grapes I had at the, at the time. And um, and the Sauvignon Blanc wouldn't, didn't fit, even at like 10%. Mm. It was only two barrels of Sauvignon Blanc on a 400 case blend. So I was like, it didn't fit. And I didn't want to believe it didn't fit. And he was like, it doesn't, it doesn't fit. Don't force it. That was it. And he wasn't a man of a lot of words. And, you know, it's like, once he said, don't force it, I made a 50K Sauvignon Blanc as hmm. a standalone wine. And then I, you know, over the years, I just went, you know, kept growing and growing and growing. Um, and I didn't want to make more than three wines or four wines. And then I realized that I, I was making a lot of vermouth in 2011 and I started that program and anything that didn't fit into the core blends went to the vermouth program. And that was working for a number of years, but the vermouth program was, was, uh, was just a financial failure, but I didn't want to believe it because it was cool. And I drank a lot of it myself. Cause when, then, when, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but did, did you find that in other parts of the world, they were drinking vermouth as like an aperitif and it just wasn't happening here? Yeah. 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 Sherry kind of same thing. It's Sherry, vermouth, you know, after dinner drinks. Like we're not yeah. we're not port people, we're not sort of turns people, we're not, you know, this these classic, you know, kind of fortified wines of the world or you know, we're we are cocktail people and I think yeah. this country drinks a lot of vermouth and cocktails and they don't know it's what it is. Yeah. Um and they don't care. I had someone drink a bottle bottle of my vermouth once and call up my Masakan winery number was like, why does your wine smell like turpentine? <laughs> and I was like, that's a fucking problem. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, and I'm like, uh, like, I knew right away what he was talking about. So I was like, it's obviously, yeah. But, and that's fine. And that's totally fine. Um, I'm okay with that. And yeah. Can just one thought about or a question about the Sauvignon Blanc not working was it like there was there something that added to it that you liked that's why you struggled with it or did it just didn't work anyway well no i <laughs> i know that you needed to use it of course yeah. right I no mean, but it, like the the thing we always talk about like saran or own blend right it overwhelmed at, at it eight percent it's fine at ten percent it's too much right right it was, was that the was that it or was, was it, it a textural thing i mean and i know this is hard but just trying to wrap my head around like where, where you were at with it or what was it that Andy saw clearly that you didn't see? 
How about that? It, Andy was one of the best blenders I have ever seen. Like he can see blends before they materialize. Like he spent a lot of time looking at spreadsheets and saw blends like he saw them in advance. And I think he just had like a photo. Yeah, yeah. I think he had a photographic memory of taste and palate. So he'd come through the winery, you know, once a week during harvest, taste the tanks, taste the barrels when they were all barreled down and then like go back, build his spreadsheets and come back and be like, all right, this is the blend. What do you see on the spreadsheets? Chemistry. I think chemistry helps a lot. Like a chemistry is like when you, you can blend away sweetness, you can blend away, you can blend in acidity. I, I mean, I've done, I've never added water or acid to a Moscon wine in 13 years of producing Moscon wines. There was no reason to, right? I mean, I, I made, I took risks early on because I was afraid of uh, high pHs to harvest at low levels. So I never had to worry about alcohol. There's so many different things that I, um, that I, that I, that you can kind of look at. But at the end of days, after you got the first blend done the first year, it's, I think it's the funnest part of my job because I just sit there and I now say, this needs to smell and taste like Anya because Anya has a personality and this is what it needs to be like. So if you know, if, if I know that I'm going to sit in a blending session saying this needs to smell and taste like Anya, I know what my harvest decisions are going to be. I know what my fermentation decisions are going to be. I know what barrels I'm going to use to, before I even get there. And I think that is the one thing that I, I did the same thing at Larkmead. I remember, I remember walking the vineyard at Larkmead over the years. And, and soon as we, soon as I knew the first block was ready to pick, I went in and wrote the schedule for the next 28 blocks. <laughs> okay. So you've got all this planned out, you know, the barrels, you know, everything else. Do you ever get any surprises? Well, I do get a lot of surprises. I mean, I don't make great wine every every barrel. I like to do as many barrel plants as possible, and I get a lot of reduction. I get a lot of shitty, farty things. I don't know. I don't like to add DAP or anything like that to my wines and high nitrogen stuff, And but I have to do it in instances where, like, it's super reductive, and I have I have vineyards like Bear Vineyard, the original Rebola that came from Yasko Grovner, uh, organically farmed by Steve Mathiason. That shit comes over with no yan, no, no nitrogen that the yeast need in order to have a healthy fermentation. And it, it comes over with zero, like nothing. I, mean, I had vintages where it was like nine. You know, I mean, winemakers in a room know that, like, know that's that just that's possible, real right? bad. <laughs> um, and is that so because we, of pick date or just the variety? The well, not, the yam's not going to go up by way any longer. Yeah, no, it's going to go. De- <laughs> it doesn't. Yeah. So no, but I'm pick my brain up off the is, floor and um, dust it off. It's just eat vines and all right. that fun stuff. You know, it is whatever. But um, but the so the when a- Andy saw that the that the the Sauvignon Blanc in that situation in December two thousand nine was rambunctious and it didn't work. It took it took away the subtleties of the Tokai and Rebola and the Chardonnay's kind okay. of marriage. Cool. And um, and then I then I realized and it just became a bully, a bully, and and and, and then. I went home and I tried like 1%, 2%. I did all the things that you do. And I'm like, it just doesn't work. Yeah. And I don't force it. And um, and I didn't want like from logistics purposes, I didn't want two or three wines in my portfolio. I wanted one. I wanted to be like, Masakan is a blended white wine, Mediterranean inspired, made from Italian grape varieties and a couple of Western varieties. And it re- reminiscent of Friuli and Nicolio Bianco blends that I adore. Well, and at this time you also had, I mean, to say a full-time day job is probably an understatement. I mean, you were yeah. the winemaker at a legacy Napa Valley Cabernet house. So one wine, one white wine is your sort of like side project probably made a lot of sense in that 
in that mindset, right? Oh, yeah, it did. Yeah. It was in my business plan, one white wine. <laughs> um, Which pencil better than one red wine. Yeah, but then, but then if you just take it and you make three of them, you charge them all the same price, you don't have to really change the business plan. <laughs> but also, but that one was business a, 101. That was, a, that was a growth step for you, right? Because oh, yeah. instead of being there, all of a sudden you were extending it out. Yeah. yeah. It was also, a, it, the growth step was even one before that, which is the wine that I fashioned Masakan against or uh, towards was a wine called Vida Romans uh, Fior de Wies. And that wine from Friuli is um, Tocca Frilano, Malvasia, um, Istriana, not Bianca, uh, Sauvignon Blanc, and Riesling. And it was super viscous, super powerful, super floral, um, but all incredibly textural, but also refreshing and bright and fresh. And I was like, we have sunshine. We can go 14-1 on grape varieties here in white wine grape varieties in Napa Valley for days. And so I can make this bigger, richer, barrel-fermented white wine with all that characteristic. And But my vineyard didn't allow for that to happen. The old vine, mm -hmm. Tokai Nicolini, wasn't going to get to 22 bricks right. and 13% alcohol. The Rebola was already at 20 bricks, was already a 3.4 pH. The Chardonnay, which was, you know, came from Andy and, and came from Hyde Vineyard, Andy, you know, off the back of the truck for the first couple of years, was fortunate. I was fortunate to get that those grapes from him. That was a, That's an animal unto itself because it's just a purely perfect chemistry in that wine. But, um, but the other grapes weren't going to do that. And... But uh, Enrico uh, from Arbe Garbe figured yeah. out how to do that. Like he, he figured out how to get the right grape varieties from the right sites and do some kind of fancy, you know, kind of uh, dehydrating of, of stuff. He was hanging Malvasia from the rafters yeah. of Flora Springs and it was dehydrating out the water and intensifying the viscosity and the sugars yeah. and all the other things. And, and he figured out how to get to that. And he was more of a Lisineris, Alsatian style of uh, Friulian wines. Then he was maybe Vita Romans, which was, I think, a big, powerful wine, which is kind of in the camps of like uh, Miani's, um, not as Burgundian as things like Ronco Niemitz and Borgo d'Otilio. Um, but I, so that was my first lesson. Like, what did I want to do? I couldn't do what I wanted, what I set out to do. Mm -hmm. So then I had to turn back and I said, well, what's my second favorite wine in Italy? And it's, uh, it's um, you know, Veneca's uh, Ranco de Mele Sauvignon Blanc. It's probably one of the greatest Sauvignon Blancs in the world. And, and that's a purely classically trained version of a freely white wine, all stainless steel, low to moderate alcohol, good freshness, good balance, and, um, and just like drinkable for days. So... I said, all right, well, I'm going to lean into that. And then that's how I kept leaning. Yeah. Yeah. It's awesome. Thank you for sharing that. That So I remember it was like 2010. That was the first time I'd heard of Rubola Giala. And it was from Enrico. And, and we were talking earlier. How he, he like got busy one day. And so his wife showed up to do the tasting. There was a total language barrier. But it, I, what I understood was there, there was this one tiny little vineyard over in Napa that, that they had found. But I didn't think there was any other vineyards that were planted to it so have they since planted more yeah that was that's 100 percent correct it was okay. in 2000 they started grafting a pinot grigio vineyard in the back of in george Vare's backyard vineyard six acre backyard vineyard uh, um and they started grafting the cuttings from grobner's vineyard and then it kind of in 09 it just so happened i called c matthias and i said like i saw this rebola jala and you know on the list and it said george fair and 
um, of the French Laundry. And I'm like, you know about this? You live in Oak Knoll? He's like, yeah, yeah, I know George. I, I farmed a vineyard for him. He's actually breaking up with Luna. So he's selling the fruit this year as opposed to selling it to Luna. I was like, I'm in. And um, and then George kind of, kind of like I felt like maybe he was my mentor a little bit over the years and um, really guided me in, on, on what I was trying to accomplish and uh, with the Colio Bianco concept with Anya. And then everyone fell in love with this whole Rebola Fest that we still do to this day. Yeah. Um, Stephen Jill, George started it and Stephen Jill maintained it. And, um, and like Leslie Rudd planted Rebola on, you know, Mount Reader, you know, mm. Lee Hudson planted Rebola in, in Carneros. And then I started, uh, I got Chris Bowen to plant Rebola, you know, for me a couple, a couple of times over first time I was diseased. Um, and I got some other places, but you know, that was, that was, that was that. I mean, I, I, I'm more a lover of Tokai than I am of Rebola. I think Tokai is, is quite yeah. possibly the greatest food pairing grape of all time. And, and I'm leaning more into like plant more Tokai, less Rebola. As, as, to, as many farmers I can get it. Yeah. Because Rebola is hard. Rebola, Rebola can be, you know, it, it could be a love-hate relationship yeah. with, with its reductivity. It's, it's very reductive grape. Yeah. Um, you want to talk about Tempranillo, Tempranillo and Napa? <laughs> you mean climate change? Yeah. It's uh, <laughs> kind of an easy transition into, right? I um, um yeah, yeah. I, I I will say you guys are pouring the Greco and Falagina blend. That's yeah. actually fruit from uh, Lodi plus a little bit of Russian River with uh, with uh, Steve. Bo uh, excuse me, Chris Bowen. Um, I will say I am. Um, I made a I made a big mistake in 2022 and ordered my corks. You know, driving around vineyard to vineyard, I order shit really early, and I, I kind of understand what my yields are, and I basically start ordering stuff in August for packaging because I'm bottling in February and. And so I was working, trialing DMs, and I'm like, my prices are so low for my bottles. I'm like, I can't do Icon Cork anymore at, you know, 70 cents a cork, no TCA, et cetera, et cetera. And um, so I called the Port of Cork folks and said, I have to downgrade to your your technical corks. And uh, and I just knew that DM was like, DM3 was the opening OTR, oxygen transfer rate, 3, 5, 10, blah. And then, uh, so I, I'm on the phone with my cork rep in Port of Cork, and and I'm like, I'll take your your your, your OTR three, and and she just took down that I wanted the three, and the three was actually their ten year cork. So this is the ten year cork mm. that you just pulled out of that bottle, and so like this, so it kind of it's great for longevity, but like when wines are built for you know speed, they're right. built for winning the race right out of the gate, and uh, and so like it's a little it's a little quiet. She this wine, Jamina, as you're tasting right now, is a little quiet, um, but give it a little, you know put that in the fridge drink it a little bit later today right. it's not gonna be a super warm day but come with me to don giovanni some fried olives and right. drink this a little later you'll be very happy why no, do we it's still beautiful it, it, why do we quiet. keep recording right before lunchtime <laughs> you want to tell me what it says on your label dan you want to tell me what it says on your label oh yeah i sure as hell can't read it it's uh so it's all my handwriting in italian um it is designed to be like if you read my label from left to right it's designed to be like a page of a book i'm you came from publishing you know so masakana's title jamina's chapter versus what's written there and then the vintage is the page number and then you turn the bottle like you're turning the page and it translates everything ah, on the back, back. Okay. yeah Great. um so it takes up a lot of bottle space it's uh it's it's really shitty instagram this label design because from a distance you really can't tell what it is 
But what we decided was the three things that were important to us were color and composition and, um, and then story. So and if it we, makes someone pick it up off the shelf to see what it is yeah. also, right? And my, and what I've been telling myself, you know, this is hindsight's 2020, you know, you have to convince the marketing story that about the intimacy with a bottle of wine is you actually have to pick it up and right. pour it for someone. So to your point, taking it off the shelf, when you're serving it to guests or your family or friends or loved ones or yourself, if you're, if you're that person, um, you're actually holding it in your hand. And I think that's uh, that's the intimacy connection with the wine. And then so you will then either be engaged with it or not. And I think the color is electrifying enough. It's Pompeian blue, which is now considered Masakan blue um, based on my, uh, my my travails to, to get to that color. And um, yeah, it's uh, yeah. No, it was never meant to be red on the front. I get I get that comment a lot. It's not a, it's not from young and old. Um, it's very much a cool, just little design. And I also say, look, it's like a drone picture of a vineyard from overhead. Right. <laughs> there's a couple, there's a couple missing vines there, I think. Yeah, <laughs> totally. Pierce's disease. Yeah. Those suckers just go in straight lines. <laughs> um, <laughs> climate change. Climate change. Yes. Tempranillo. Tempranillo. I mean, there's a bunch of other things. Yeah, uh, I mean, but let's let's go there first. Yeah, we're, the other stuff is a whole other show. That's everything well, else. The whole like Masakin ethos, ethos, yes. and the the social media presence and oh, the, yeah. the things that you Crazy. put out and create yeah. that are not yeah. wine that are as um, interesting. Just, and go to Mount, go to Masakin Winery on Instagram and yeah, and it's it's a great follow. play around. And you yeah. won't even know it's a winery. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. It's aspirational. I mean, everybody's chef. like, I want to be <laughs> yeah. that cool on social media. <laughs> I yeah. wish, yeah, I wish I was a tattooed uh, female chef, you know, uh, making the wines as well. I mean, Sarah's a killer. She, I love her. She's uh, she's done wonders. I, I, I'm fortunate to edit her recipes and um, post her videos and work with Jordan McKay on uh, on putting the, 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 the monthly chapters together. Um but uh, but going back, you'd asked earlier about just like the, the Larkme was a 110 acre vineyard. It had it had this beautiful uh, kind of it was at a pinch point. It was at the funnel point of like the the hourglass of the Napa Valley. It had um, everything was trying to get through it. The one thing that one thing that did get through it was the river because water cuts through everything. Water is more powerful than anything and pushes through. But what it brought with it was it brought rocks and gravel, rocks and gravel on one side clay in the middle which is basically the whole valley floor of napa and then you know the, the the kind of the crushed rock and and to the sand particulates on one side so we had three beautifully diverse uh, parcels and we had a chance to play around with them a chance to think about them think about where how they reflected not only the site the place but where else in the world that were they were reflected how can we utilize that as an opportunity to consider um uh, where things are going, where we want to be in 25 years, or what's happening. We know in the last 20 years, we know in the last 10 years or five years, uh, how drastic things have, have gone with uh, with extreme weather patterns, um, but also this uh, you know cumulative warming of the planet. And it's uh, even when we have like cold winters like we did this past year, it doesn't mean the core center of the earth isn't still warming up. Um, it's uh, it's got it's got inertia in that sense or momentum in that sense. Um, so I looked at the next 25 years, you know, after the wildfires, I asked the owners if they were going to sell the property because it came really close and they were like, no, we're going to stay here. We're going to be farmers and grow grapes and make wine. It's a generational thing. Um, 
And I was like, all right, well, if you're going to do that, I need to come up with a business plan that makes sense because you don't want to be 25 years from now writing the business plan for what it looks like in a climate changing world or a climate changing right. Napa Valley. So I started looking at things like um, what's what's Napa Valley's mas masterful uh, ability to do is to, is to have marketed itself as this great wine growing region, which it, it is from the, from the boots on the ground to the national salespeople. We were some of the best in the business across the board. Um, so I said, well, what, 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 who has succeeded in the world at a level that, that we have and what are the great wines of the world and where are they from and how do we, you know, how could we mirror them? Because if Bob Mandavi was alive in 2020, 21, 22, 23 and started Mandavi then there wasn't, there wouldn't just be the first growths of Bordeaux to look at. There wouldn't be Burgundy and or the Hawk wines of Germany to look at. There would be. You know, I always say the two of the top 10 greatest wines of all time are going to be Vega Cecilia, which is a Tempranillo Cabernet blend, and then and Grange, which is a, uh, a Shiraz Cabernet blend. And they are grown in conditions that are comparable or worse than what we have here today yeah. in, in Northern California. And when I say that with conditions, I'm speaking mostly of climactic conditions. Um, so if you're a great wine collector of Napa Valley wines or of the world, you probably have heard of Vega Cecilia. You probably have heard of Grange. So, and those wines cost more than what the Larkmead wines were charging. So aspirationally, I was like, what if we can be Napa Valley's huh. Vega? What if we can be Napa Valley's Grange? I think a lot of people have tried to be Grange over the years, but I think this is a, Napa Valley did a really good job trying to be Bordeaux and surpassing Bordeaux in its notoriety across the board of its volume of wines priced at that level. Um, stylistically, let's not even talk about style. I mean, it's, yeah. we, we know we're not, Bordeaux and, and Sonoma's not Burgundy, but what we've in trying to mirror and aspire to what we love, we've created something great. And that's Napa wines and that's Sonoma County wines. And I think that that is something that we have to respect and stop. You know, we've, I think we've stopped as winemakers calling ourselves Burgundian and Bordelais and all that shit. Um, I hope. <laughs> um for the most part yeah <laughs> but so yeah so that was the goal was to say okay what what does napa look like in 25 years and can we can we adapt evolve like i keep saying this and no one wants to believe it but napa valley is fucking not even 30 years old it started in 1994 i don't care if larkin was 125 years old sorry it's like you didn't sell you sold you didn't make wine from like 1938 to, to 1998. I mean, like you weren't making wine, you were selling grapes. No one cared about Napa Valley as much as, as we do today. No one put the money, the time, the energy, the effort to create a world-class wine growing region um, the way we have in the last 30 years from 1994 to the present day. And, and I think that that is something that we, we have to take pride in as that generation and that generation is you know people who came from outside the industry and they came in and they they had the first love of the first industry the old days of the mandavis and the bvs and the you know chapelets and all those you know kind of iconic heritage brands of napa valley and those are great but they were if you look at those brands today they're the iconic heritage brands of napa valley sold in supermarkets and great we need that we need people by having access to our wines where we are today is a completely different model and those brands that still survive have survived for because of their legacy and i am good on them nothing against them but um we need we need them we needed them and but they gave us a springboard to do what the modern day napa valley has done which in the last 30 years is is an incredible case study yeah um 
And I think that we, it happened so fast and so hard. It was also happening during, you know, when things were changing that we weren't seeing the forest and the trees of the climactic changes. We were just seeing the consumer changing in demand yeah. and we weren't looking around at everything else. Yeah. <laughs> now we're looking around at everything else and it's going to be like, oh shit, we gotta prepare for this ultimate, right. ultimate change. And I think that's an important thing that's hard to do when you're a family business who owns a vineyard and a winery, which I don't own a vineyard or a winery, just the right to make wine as a winery. Um, and then you have a tasting space and you're like, I always say, the reason why we're, we don't look at 10 years ahead in Napa Valley is because we are worrying about who's coming through the door today and what the 10 day weather forecast is and bottling next week and hosting visitors and making sure they had a great time and getting their names down so that we can sell them wine later for, you know, ROI and lifetime value and all the things like we're hospitality businesses, we're restaurant businesses, we're farming businesses, we're agricultural, we're manufacturing, we're wholesale, third party, we've got people on the road trying to sell our wines. Like that's a pretty vertically integrated business that is mind consuming, time consuming, dollar consuming. I was say cash consuming. And yeah. I think so when you ask someone to think about you know, the, the synthetic herbicides they use or the changing climates. It's just like, I just don't have the fucking bandwidth. And I respect that, but we need to have the bandwidth or we're in trouble. So how do you market white wines? <laughs> I mean, you're, because you're talking about DTC not really being the best yeah. option, right? So, I mean, where I get the bottles is anytime we drive by Oakville Grocer, we, we stop in and pick up a bottle or two but um i mean how do you how do you market to this demographic i buy the glass you know and i said to myself and pre-pandemic i said masakan is going and my original business plan was predominantly wholesale as well but in 2018 2019 i said masakan is going to be a 100 percent wholesale brand coming into the, the next era of my business and the reason for that was DTC, white wine brands, hard. Um, shipping perishable goods, hard. hard. Uh, shipping. Limited amount of time to ship those yep. things. Yeah. Um, weight of shipping, expensive. Um, $300 Cabernet is the same weight as a $30 bottle of Masakan. Um, right. The consumer doesn't like the, the ratio of $6 a bottle shipping of Masakan versus $6 a bottle shipping of a $100 Cabernet. They can do the math on that one. And they're like, this doesn't make sense to me. And they, you know, exit the cart. And I'm like, I'm not going to have to, I don't want to plea to people to say, you know, buy my wine. I, I'm just, what I plead to people to say is I'm transparent in everything I do. I'm going to be transparent in my marketing. I could raise my price $6 and charge you a dollar for shipping. And you'll right. think I'm god's gift to you know wine sales but i'm like that's just marketing lying through marketing and i don't want to do that and um so i'll go through the process of having that conversation with the customer when they bitch at me about my shipping costs being expensive and i still subsidize 20 percent of the shipping costs so how's it it's so i really want moscow to be a by the glass um full you know full time by the glass experience so that people can have a glass of wine at the table at the bar uh anywhere that they they can have it so i want it sold in retail i want people bringing the wine home and i thought you know the thing that made so made me so happy during the pandemic and i never wished that those times on us ever again but it made me so happy that we were forced to be around the table with family and friends 
um, at six feet in some instances, but, um, but we were really forced to come together and eat together, drink together, stay together and have that table experience, which was so important to my family in the, in, when we were growing up as kids and my grandparents and their, their grandparents and the generations before us, it was about the table, right? You know, I mean, we saw it in TV shows. I mean, there was right. more, more of the TV shows in the 60s, 70s and 80s were always like there were people sitting at tables and having dinner together. And, and well, people sat in living rooms, eating dinner, watching those shows, right? Yes. Hmm. That smells good. Um, yeah, so I think about just how do I get more bottles of Mazacan on tables? And yeah. the easiest way to do it for me was I used my old, I, again, I tell the story all the time and I don't know if people listen to me. Um, I, you know, everyone says restaurants build brands. I'm like, by the glass builds brands. Um, yeah. you know, you can be one of one wine on a 300 page, 300 page list <laughs> or a 300 yes. wine list. And great. You can tell your, the visitors, to your tasting room that you're on the French laundry wine list. Guilty by association. Great. Use that marketing, but you're not, but that same case of wine is going to be there for, you know, right. you're deplete it once a year. You know, the first year of Massac on Savignon Blanc, they sold 50 cases by the glass. And that's five bottles, you know, 12 bottles, 600 bottles. That's 3,000 glasses of Masakan Sabine Yeah. Yeah. And, and people talking about it. That's significant. And my, and for me, if you think about it that way, how much would you pay for that? So what I did was I looked at, uh, I sold advertising in magazines and I, um, Time Magazine, the inside cover spread is the most expensive, you know, it's the one that people remember. You focus group magazine readers. Everyone remembers the Ford ad. Everyone remembers the Estee Lauder ad or the Gucci ad or whatever. And that opening spread because it's the first thing you see. And then you turn, you get the table contents, right? So, well, you open a wine list. The first thing you see is about a glass. Yeah. And there's 30 options between white, red, rosé, now the sparkling, all the different things. But, like, if you can be one of the 30 as opposed to being in the 30 pages behind it, what is what would you pay for that? And so I... I, I I did Instagram advertising and it was costing me $5 to get one person to sign up for my Instagram account. Like $5 for one sign up. And that, that was, I got, I, what did I get from it? I have no idea. Um, well, I do actually, but it's another, another podcast. But, um, but then I was like, well, not what $5 if, worth probably though. But I was like, what if I, what if I disc, I could do this in California. It's harder to do this in other States because of the way pricing works with wholesales and so forth and so on. But in California, I couldn't, I can, give a restaurant a five dollar a bottle discount and that's one pouring it by the glass that's one dollar a glass that i'm paying out of a marketing budget a, a fictitious marketing budget for someone to drink my wine in the place i want them to drink it at a table and i'm like is that not worth a dollar yeah and then being it and i didn't have to do this with the french laundry i didn't have to discount with the french laundry because they their system is built to, to to kind of price everything the way it needs to be priced. And but if you're gonna do that and you can get, you know, I'm very, very blessed to be poured by the glass for the last three years in a row at State Bird Provisions and and they are I'm doing that whole model with them, make five dollars. And I'm like, how many you know, they've gone through a pallet a year for three years. You know, that's three thousand <laughs> glasses of Masakana a year at that restaurant. And I don't care if these people don't buy my wines on my website. They're buying, they might buy them at K&L. They might buy them the next time they're at the restaurant. They might buy them a retail shop in their hometown. I don't care. It's everyone asks like what's succeeding and what's not succeeding in selling wine. I'm like, well, I'm sold out four months a year. I'm doing a lot of weird shit. It's a cumulative effect of all of it that I'm creating, you know, recognition of, you know, re, you know, recall. And that to me is the most important thing. That's why when anyone, 
I, I talk to advertisers, I talk to marketers, I talk to PR people and clients all want ROI. How, what, well, did any of that influencer that I paid $900 to do a, a post in the grid, yeah. like, did they get me any sales? And I'm like, that's not the game, dude. Like you don't get that ROI. Yeah. It's not, it's, that's not the game. It's, you know, I always go back to the same reference point. Ford's does not sell a shit ton of F-150s a day after the Super Bowl, but they spent 5 million showing you two ads. But they're not sitting, they're not waiting for that 5 million to come in on Monday morning oh, when wow. all of us are driving to the Ford lot to buy the new F-150. That's just not happening. But it's part of the bigger mix to make Ford F-150 the greatest pickup truck sold in america and it is and it is and they've got a marketing mix you never rely on one thing yeah yeah and they just dropped their price of the uh on the ten thousand dollars on the lightning yeah yeah i know electric i think everybody who bought one last week is pretty pissed though i would be <laughs> absolutely maybe it wasn't delivered so maybe they'll get a rebate <laughs> you, you know what i got a phone call yesterday Are you on the list? i got a phone no i got a phone call yesterday from monarch tractors oh Oh yeah, they're they're aggressively like I got an email and then I got a phone call from a person right. saying, "Hey, call me back. We'll get you a tractor. It's, you know, put you on the list. It's it's easy." Well, Cheap. there's also, I mean, there's a whole bunch of that uh, totally off topic, but there totally is a whole bunch topic. of like rebates yeah. in the California. I mean, the ones yeah. that we the one that we bought, uh, I, you just, don't pay nearly the sticker price because of all this like incentives to get right. those tractors out there in the field. I'm you know, I'm just like shocked. Are you gonna that buy one me to drive around your? For the horse paddock or something? No, for the tractor parade this year, I'm gonna get one. Oh, there you go. Yeah. Are these new yeah. electric tractors? I gotta yeah. ask Carlo Mondavi if he if he looked at the pie. <laughs> <laughs> because I um, because I actually uh, I I remember hearing a great story from KJ uh, from Julian Jevro when he was at KJ and he, they brought a bunch of tractor producers manufacturers to uh, to Sonoma County to talk about making a lightweight tractor, not an electric tractor. And he told me that um, that John Deere turned him down because he said that the wine industry was a rounding error. Was a wow. what? A rounding error. John, you don't see John Deere out here, right? It's like it's not rare. Much. Yeah. It's rare. Yeah. So Kubota. he's like, yeah, it's a rounding error. So we're not gonna we're not gonna do some R and D for you to like build a lightweight tractor because your business isn't big enough. I mean, the wine industry's not like no. you know. I mean, there's 90 million acres of agriculture in America. Um, there's 55,000 here in Sonoma County, right? 45,000 in uh, Napa County. And that's, you know, the biggest in the North coast It's a hundred thousand out of 90 million. Yeah. You know, we are as a, as a, we're the hardest things to grow in agriculture. Uh, we're the most, you know, high touch things to grow in agriculture. We, pr we produce the most carbon in farming in agriculture because of our high touch. And, but we are a fraction of the total agriculture of, of America. Yeah. Most carbon like per acre. Or yeah. Okay. Yeah. 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 But still, uh, that's a big number. Yeah, because yeah. uh, we're just—I mean, we're, we're 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 right small number at of, every level yeah, for a big right, number. Yeah, big. at every level, even at you know even at the two buck chuck level, at the three dollar bottle level, there's still um, there's still it's still more high touch than you know corn or soy or you know or you know wheat and so forth and so on. So it's like you have to remember that we're this industry is uh, it's it's luxury farming, yeah. in in essence. Do you remember the article where Fred Franzia said the reason why we can sell two buck chuck is because we have, you know, X a million corks standing, X amount of glass standing, and our rows are so long that we save money on on tires because we don't have to turn the tractors as much. 
that was in that was in like wine and business practical you know, or something. there's a that's a pie yeah. right that's right. a pie it's a genius no I, I i've become i'm a terrible driver um but since we've gotten these little devices on your on your dashboards now i look at i i'm like i'm like why do people look at rpms like why do we have rpms on car i'm like who the fuck drives with rpm unless you're driving a stick it doesn't matter right yeah and like, well, it ma- still does it even you can hear it right? yeah exactly and and so uh, you know i'm like with automatics i'm like ah. but what i realized with rpms is gas mileage mm-hmm. and and so i've become a better driver and i'm also the, the turning thing that you're talking about and the, having and the braking, braking thing it's like all the things about how often i want to which reminds me i need to go get my oil change um <laughs> 7500 <laughs> miles right you know it's like anyhow um it remind it's like made me a more thoughtful driver in that yeah. sense, and that's the only reason why I look at RPMs because I can then equate it to thirty miles a gallon versus twenty miles a gallon versus forty miles a gallon, um, and then the turning and I, the I braking mean, and the tires. Start um, monitoring your gallons per, I mean your miles per gallon while you're driving. Like you know, that's what do I'm doing. it. Do it with the game um, with cruise control. Yeah, like. You can change your yeah. miles per gallon. Yeah, getting your foot off the gas. Getting your foot off the gas and let it, you know. And now I have a new truck that mm-hmm. has the radar. Um, so as if you're on cruise control and you approach the car in front, it will slow down yeah. for you. Yeah. And it's not hitting the brake. It's no. just show, slowing the vehicle down. And it's, distance, the distance that it, you tell it to stay away from the yep. car in front of you. Yeah. So, so less brakes, just less yeah. fuel. I get better gas mileage. Yeah. I think um, still I've, terrible gas mileage, but yeah, I've gamified. What's your mileage? Twelve. No, I get a, I get seventeen, <laughs> and and like if I'm on a just on the highway, like just driving somewhere during that time on the highway, I can get like twenty two. Yeah. yeah. Um, will you just talk about this Chardonnay? Cause it's fucking yeah, beautiful. <laughs> I mean, so yeah. this yeah, this is uh, this is Hyde Vineyard. I am very blessed to be working with Hyde Hyde Vineyard. Andy Smith got me that intro years ago it also happened i was uh one of my earliest friends in napa was uh, stefan vivier who was the winemaker for hyde divilane hdv winery yeah. um so i got to know larry uh, and his amazing. wife beta early on in the game and then when i started working directly with hyde Minion, i started working with larry's son chris um and chris is a buddy now and uh a, 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 you know a, just a great proponent of agriculture and continuing to grow and making sure that we're doing the right thing for the you know the community and he um he's been great for me it's a great uh, uh an opportunity for me to, to continue to grow my production through uh through getting sourcing more fruit at hyde i make wines hyde is made at hyde estate winery uh like larry and chris make their own personal wines at um so i make the wine there alongside the janina that you're tasting as well today and um 100 new french oak 100 um chardonnay it's a large large format would have never guessed guessed. would have never guessed with the aromatics when simple simple um uh, explanation to this one it's a hogshead barrels 300 liters versus 225 so a little large like more wine to wood ratio light toast i love allier forest allier to me has always been slightly more uh a softer gentler aromatic forest um for french oak and wine doesn't go through uh, ml so you don't have the creamy lactic-y extraction from the oak and like the blend of the oak so you still got that you know green apple pop and um it's a lower alcohol so you don't have the solvency of pulling extracting right, the oak right. and so you add all those things together that's what you asked earlier about what do you see on paper 
Well, you could yeah. see why all those things will potentially do something like that. Is that is that like a given rule? No, I'm not a recipe winemaker on paper, but yeah, but no, numbers don't lie, that, yeah. right. and things happen, and uh, and then and so that's uh, that's how it's been. And you know, for me, it was a more pragmatic, practical approach to why this is 100% new French oak because nothing else in my portfolio deserves new French oak. Maybe a little Sauvignon Blanc, but. I was like, you guys know as winemakers. You, you got a bunch you... of nice barrels for the rest of the lineup after that. Yeah, no, yeah. exactly. It's yeah. like no one sells their white wine barrels. I mean, you know, Stony Hill was using it for 25 years. Other places like 10, 15 years in. Yeah. So it's hard to buy neutrals. And then you're going to spend a lot of money on a neutral barrel. I'm like, eh. Um, so I was like, okay, I want to get to a point. I have a plan to get to a point where I'm exclusively Hermitage, exclusively Hogsheads. How many years of buying 12 barrels is it going to how many years is it going to take me to get to that point with my growth potential and then also implementing stainless steel mullers for the Sauvignon Blanc production and then so it literally I had like a seven eight year plan to get there and then I can get rid of like I did buy some early you know stuff from Dumont and you know some old bar barrels from Larkmead and stuff you know Larkmead's Sauvignon Blanc production diminished over time so I bought those barrels and just to kind of keep my production going but now I'm moving more into stainless on things like Sauvignon Blanc and Pinot Grigio and uh, which is going to be a big push moving forward um, I, I fret doing things like Tokai Filano and Rebola Jaller through stainless steel because they are super reductive varieties right. and not treated properly you're fucked um, you'll ruin a vintage and again I don't know how to fix it so I'm not a chemist I'm not an academic I don't know how to fix the, the screw-ups I make in wine so they either get dumped down the drain or made into vermouth or mostly dumped down the drain and so I tried my best to have TLC so I don't dump anything down the drain and it would increase my ROI on that uh, particular parcel. Um, you know, 57 cases per ton. And I, sh I would love to get to that, huh. you know, valued 60 cases per ton um, on white wine, but- uh, Press harder. Yeah. <laughs> I get 160 gallons a ton now that I'm not at Larkmead. Larkmead had a nice old two and a half ton Wilms that, you know, try to do 85 tons in a two and a half ton Wilms by yourself and clean that fucking press three times a day. Um, that was, those were the days. I don't miss that. And then sleep for 45 minutes and wake up and do it again the next I'm day. I'm all tired. I'm, I'm, I'm too old and too tired and too lazy to do that these days. But um, yeah, I like my six and 12 ton presses now. Yeah. Some of them are self-cleaning. There's the dream. Yeah. That's, there's the real dream. Yeah. Yeah. Self -cleaning. <laughs> Quote unquote self-cleaning. Yeah. You're self still in there. Just, just never turn it off. Yeah. <laughs> right, right. That's the best thing. I was like, why do we turn this, the, the sorting equipment off? Can't we just process 24 hours a day in six days and get it all over with instead of three weeks and have to clean it, you know, clean it six times as opposed to, uh, you know, 18 times. Right. I'm like, why not? <laughs> and the intern one time says, why do you clean the press at the end of the night? Just leave the grapes in it and start again in the morning. You can just see the winemaker just like doing uh, this. That is He's uh, went the opposite direction. He's probably now working in advertising, right? <laughs> well, Dan, right. thank yeah. you very much. Yeah, we know you got to go. What's one What's one thing you want to make maybe in the future we'll look forward to that you're not doing right now? When's Pino, the red coming out? No, <laughs> don't Pino start. Grigio, Pinot Grigio, honestly. Pinot Grigio Pino for Grigio. sure. Yeah. And, and, and it's not, it's going to be, you know, what I want to do is I want to, I want to take a stab at, you know, using that 24, 25% we have varietally to, uh, to kind of make it Pinot Grigio and something. What is that thing right now? It's probably Greco, you know, could be Sauvignon Blanc, but if I want to make a consumer friendly Pinot Grigio, yeah. probably not Greco. Um, if I want to scale it, it's probably maybe, probably Chardonnay, you know, probably maybe, I mean, yeah. 
we don't have to talk about what grape is in there. Cortese is possibly a really mm. good mm. Uh, blender there. I think it's going to do really well just because it's so it's such malleable and it's like it's just so easy to drink and it adds just you know kind of drinkability when you with Cortese blends. Um, I, I'm I'm blown away. Like you're referencing all these grape varieties, which I've had so few of them yet you never go home and open a bottle of wine by yourself and taste them well, where do you drink all this wine i have a tasting group a lot of no, friends I, I, like my wife my wife obviously like i and so when i open wine it's like i'll open 24 bottles yeah. and i'll tell my friends hey i just opened 24 <laughs> bottles they're all open you want to come over and drink yeah. and like so seriously like i, I by volume I he opens a bottle a day <laughs> I, there's the vault yes i i i I am. Uh, I've always said I. I love food and cocktails and dessert and all those things so much that you know I don't need. For me, wine is here and here. It's not here. Yeah. And people, I just pointed at my nose, my mouth, and I said it's not at my stomach because I don't need any extra uh, attire around my stomach because I already have a couple. <laughs> right. But um, I. I think that wine gives me so much pleasure, so much intellectual stimulation, smelling it and drinking it. You yeah. said earlier about red wines. Giuseppe Mascarello and Mon Privato, and I'll just leave it at this. I hope it's the last thing I smell before I die. Yeah. All right. Uh, any shout outs you guys want to give? Uh, how do um, you people? I guess if you're not following Marsican, Marsican, Marsican Winery I'm just say on Instagram forever. Um, like, it's just like French wine. I'll just pronounce it wrong so I know what I'm talking about. Right. Uh, but yeah, follow, follow on it on Instagram. Yeah. Uh, Six dollars a bottle shipping sounds like a deal. So buy some wine online, change the change the the, the <laughs> paradigm, the uh, algorithm on uh, DTC white wine because these wines are great. Yeah, and, look for yeah. it on by the glass, and if it's not there, then ask about it. Right yeah. there, you go. Yeah. Um, awesome. Love you guys. Thank <laughs> you. I'm sorry, you. I got to run. I got a board meeting. No, no, you're no, good. no, all good. Yeah. Just run out of here. <laughs> and uh, and we we talked about some unique varietals. Uh, look forward to this. Is going to come out in two weeks. Um, we are going to definitely talk about St. Laurent. <laughs> Thanks, Dan. Yeah, we, we have a guest coming up. Uh, I don't know if it's going to be the, the week Ricci after family? this, the Ricci family and Tara Jane Albee from, um, uh, own root collective is going to, um, come on and Tyler is coming with his dad. Um, oh, so we're all going to awesome. be on the show at the same time. Cool. Yeah. So we can talk about St. Laurent. If any of you even know what the fuck that is. Of course. Uh, well, Bart, uh, that's right. Bart's got a whole history with St. Laurent. I I mean I I could have had a history with Saint you Laurent. You could have that's right. He could have had a history with Saint Laurent. You know, you want some right. free grapes? John. All right. Jasmine came out fast for that one. Sam, any other shout outs? Uh we Bart. got some vinyl Sundays on the calendar. Excellent. August sixth, Stanley Mass Appreciation Day. Uh we'll have some art here for it. Uh he will not be making it. Uh still recovering from, from a stroke, but uh, I think his daughter will be here. Uh, I wonder great if he music, made great it. food for that one. You think he made yeah. it to any of the shows? I I doubt, doubt it. it. No, I doubt it. There Dude. was some. There was some. You know, luminaries uh, of the Grateful Dead world that were there. You know, Wavy Gravy and Jahanover were there. Uh, John Myers, who you know made the, the all the speakers, was there with his wife. Uh, you know, Jerry's wife. Uh, you know, former wife, Mountain Girl. Uh, you know, and, and Trixie were there. So there was a lot of people there, but I don't, uh, Stanley didn't I'm, make it. I'm hoping that Stanley could look out his window and see the drones, the shot I did for you. Well, you know, of his, of that would have been quite artwork. a view from Sebastopol, John. Oh, well, okay. Yeah, sorry about that. Yeah. <laughs> but it would have been, 
I, the drones were awesome. Well, get him one of those photos. Yeah, I will. Yeah. I will. Uh, and then, of course, and the Bach. as dubbed by Brian Casey, greatest concert to ever happen in Sonoma. Ever. September 17th. Ever. Catherine Russell, part of our epic Grenache Day weekend of debauchery. Uh, it's going to be fun. Debauchery. Yeah, if you're not going to be there, be nowhere. Right. <laughs> Bart? Dinner Festival. Ah, that's coming up, man. It's going to be fun. Sonoma Valley dot com. Lots of fun. Vintage Festival is always a great time, man. So, all right, plan your vacations, everybody, and we'll talk to you next week. Thanks for listening.